Welcome to the Who Do You Think You Are podcast with me, Elan Ezekiel. And in today's episode, Penny Rabiger turned the tables on me and asked me, who do you think you are? We talked about the power of names, growing up in an Asian household in a European Jewish London, and my favourite foods, which was fun. And we also looked at what British Jews could do to be more inclusive. I'll hand you over to Penny as she asks me, who do you think you are? So I'm Penny Rabiger and I have the privilege of having Ilan Ezekiel with me today. Who do you think you are? I'd love to hear about how you define your Jewish identity. But before we rush into that, just tell me a little bit about who you are in terms of where you are now, what you do and how you came to be. So I am a child of the early 70s. I grew up in London. I am English, British. I grew up watching three channels and then four channels. And so I'm of that generation where, where you know, I got my sense of identity off things like, are you being served and all that sort of weird and wonderful TV. I was not sporty, not particularly academic, very into television and music as a kid. Academically didn't fly, but I enjoyed learning. I ended up as a teacher, which is kind of how we met through the whole education world. I was a teacher in London, teacher then later in Oxford, but I've always worked in and around education and in publishing, often in technology related work because technology is often used as a proxy for change, which suits my personality in some way. So I've always been on the edges of conversations and rather than maybe in the main conference hall. I now live in Oxford, so I'm surrounded by a lot of very, very clever people and also some of the worst social deprivation in Britain, an incredible city. But there aren't many Jews here. So often when I think about my Jewish identity, it tends to be more to do with my London life. So living in a situation that you're in now, how do you define that Jewish identity? Mm. Yeah, good question. Well, there's a there's a whole thing about my Jewish identity. It's got a lot to do with my name. Some of my mum's family changed their their family name, which was Bernstein, to Brown. They anglicised it. So I could have been my middle name, which is Jonathan. I could have been Jonathan Brown, John Brown, right? In which case, a lot of my Jewish identity would never come up. I could have moved to Oxford, been a very quiet Jew. You couldn't have been a quiet Jew, but... Well, I think think my name has made me, has forced me to have to explain. People go, oh, that's that's a weird name. Where's that from? Oh, yeah, but where are you you from? London. No, where are you really from? Where's your name from? You know, there's that need to explain it. And uh, so a lot of my Jewish identity comes out of having to explain my name. So a lot of your Jewish identity, you can thank your parents for who made the decision to give you a name that was like waving a big big june flag <laughs> absolutely <laughs> like they could have called you jonathan brown yeah they could have done and yeah there was a point I, I was bullied quite a lot at school and i was getting a bit of it at primary and when i moved to secondary uh my parents said do you want to swap your names around should we you know enroll you as jonathan rather than as elan there was something about, it was already baked into my personality at that point that I was like, no, that's my name. It's a big not, thing. 
change your name. Yeah. And I didn't want to do that. And there was a point where I could have changed direction, but that meant that I then spent, that didn't help with the bullying, by the way, that did tend to make it worse. But it meant that everywhere I went, I was holding a big flag that said, Jew, Jew here. And if you don't know, you're going to end up finding out. That's just the Elan Ezekiel bit. But my full name is Elan Yonatan Ben Gabriel Rushbooker, right? That's like the big family story name. There's a village, Rushbooker, and then my grandmother's family is Kamaleka from Kamale. But we need to unpack that at some stage. Yeah. Because that is deeply intertwined with your Jewish identity. That meant that wherever I go, since leaving my parents' house, I've never belonged to a synagogue. I haven't. You know, I mean, apart from not, not, not practicing in so many ways, but I haven't done those other signifiers of being Jewish. I joined the Jewish Society at university. A Jewish family we know in the area has had someone died in the family, and so we've had the shiver and the whole uh, period of mourning that that involves. And I've been able to slip into that relatively easily meeting lots of Jewish, quite religious Jewish people with who didn't know me. They, they were like, oh, you live in Oxford. But they already knew I was Jewish from the moment I said my name, mm-hmm. right? They, there were certain assumptions were made about my knowledge and, you know, handing me the prayer book, expecting me to find my way. And I did because, but I think if I'd presented with John, John Brown, my guess is they probably would have been a bit like, well, we're here on this page and we're going to do this now. And I would have then had to say, actually, I know it's okay. But they didn't because they heard Elan Ezekiel and went, okay, big Jew, probably. I don't know. That's what, that's the way I feel it. So my Jewish identity is from Jews. I get a lot of assumptions about me, which is kind of okay. Sometimes from non-Jews, it's just a big capital J and then a question mark at the end because there's some weird stuff as well about my identity they can't quite make sense of. Please talk to me about your kind of racial and ethnic background and how that has shaped your identity. Because you say, you know, Jews, even Jews assume something and then a surprise. So you're just a big surprising man who walks into a room. Just to be on, on the record with this, I don't choose to walk into the room. <laughs> but I felt like, I felt like one way or another, a lot of my leaning into that behavior has been because something about the way that I am surprises people. And I, so I'm like, well, that is what they do. So I'll just keep on doing that rather than me going, I'm a weirdo. I think, you know, and and enjoying that because it's not always very comfortable. And most of school was an example of where that was really not pleasant. To answer your question, my... Mum's family are Ashkenazim. They're European Jews that left Polish-Russian area somewhere at the turn of the century. We think sort of maybe 1909-ish, largely because of pogroms. And they travelled across Europe, picking up all sorts of interesting flavours on the way. France, Switzerland, no, Switzerland, France in that direction. And then they got to London and settled in and they were part of the rag trade in the East End. And there's a whole rich history of Ashkenazi identity there. I grew up knowing my great-grandmother, who was this very little shtetl lady, was part of my identity as well. So, yeah, something there's probably a lot there that's very familiar when people think the word Jew, right? The word Jewish. Um, and so half my family 
were Ashkenazi. And the house that I grew up in was quite different in lots of ways. My dad's family are from India and they are from the B'nai Israel Jewish community, which will have been a community in India for 2,000 odd years. Mm-hmm. So they, it's a very established, not huge, but well-established community in India that's sort of flourished from the end of the 19th century into the 20th century. Some of the founding stars of Bollywood and some of the founders of this, the modern state of India were B'nai Israel people, right? So... There's that whole heritage of brown Jews that's rather confusing to people I know who are of South Asian descent because I kind of recognize and feel very comfortable because I grew up in what I think of as an Indian household. We lived with my grandparents' house. So my mum was the daughter-in-law living in an Indian house. And there were lots of things that would be very familiar to people who've grown up in that environment that I feel I can identify with. But as you can see, and the listeners can't, I don't necessarily look it. With that history is, again, comes back to my name. So that the B'nai Israel communities identified each other by which villages and which where and where they, which town they lived in. So you would be Penny from Carmelay, right? So Carmelay Ker is Ker means from. So you'd be that person from that town. So I were, we were the Ezekiels from Rajpur, Rajpurka. So I knew my name and my upbringing meant that I had this very clear signifier that whether I liked it or not, or whatever I did about it, I came from, we came from part of me that was Indian. Right. That's, that's powerful. And also probably created quite a lot of need for more explanation than people to me Elan Ezekiel it's a it's a kind of white Jewish name how do you bring all of that kind of racial and ethnic background not only that it shapes your identity but you bring it into how people perceive of you because it is important isn't it 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 is because it's it's how much people can take that information right it's how comfortable you feel to share if I'm talking to someone who's not Jewish who I don't know and who I you know just trying to skim the conversation and they ask about my name I say they're both Hebrew names one means tree so Elan means tree it's generally a sort of fruit tree and Ezekiel means God will strengthen why my parents did it I meant to be a God strengthened tree right and then I make a joke about being a bit leafless because those of you who haven't seen me I have no hair and therefore, I make a bad pun and then we joke about the bad pun. For most people, that's enough. They don't want to know. But the people who do, and in some ways, that's me making it easy for them, right? I'm giving people a way out. And But I didn't always used to do that. And I would tell people more, <laughs> more and more. But a lot of people just glaze over because it is too much. If it's a Jewish name, that's all they want to know. Okay, yeah. okay so you're Jewish. Yeah. Done. Enough. And then if people do ask, I will tell but it isn't something that I lead with. I don't lead with being Indian or Asian because I, most people don't see that. And it's in, it may be in my genes, but it's not something I walk around. You know, I don't, I'm not in a brown skin. So people don't come to me with those assumptions first. They know that my name is weird. It's a series of doors to my identity. When you're introducing yourself to people who are not Jewish, You've had an experience also that's different maybe from quite a lot of other British Jews. 
Talk to us about those challenges then. There's my experience of it, and then there's probably stuff to do with what I saw with my family. Mm. So there's probably two bits there. There's probably my side of it, which is, I think as a kid, you just navigate. I think what I've ended up with is being an expert code switcher. And to the point where my kids find have always found me utterly embarrassing for many things. But the thing that I think bothers them, used to bother them, I say, now get it, is how quickly I code switch. I grew up having to move from my European family's way of doing Jew mm-hmm. to and the food and even the pronunciation of various, you know, in terms of reading reading Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Hebrew sounds different in, in Ashkenazi pronunciation than it does to well, my paternal grandparents, how they spoke. So I knew that I had to read the prayers differently. The songs were different. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way of eating certain foods was different. Mm-hmm. So I I was always, and I probably still am, quite a comfortable code switching, changing how I speak, changing how I stand even, where I, how dominant I might be in a room, whatever, all of those sorts of things, which a lot of it is very gendered, uh, to, to allow for that. Wild generalization here. In my experience, in my European family, the women were a lot more were the stronger force in the family. Not that the men were doing nothing, but they were, the women were definitely led the way, led the discussions. In my Indian family, in the Banesha family, it was generally the men talking more so and the women talking somewhere else often. I learned how to to get the most attention in both of those spaces because... <laughs> that seems to have been a constant that I do like a bit of attention, says the man doing a podcast. I can't help but notice that you mentioned food. I know that he is a shared love, like yeah. mine and yours. So talk to me then about code switching or kind of culture popping in terms of what was on your plate in different situations and some of the food that you grew up with. There's so many so many foods I want to talk about, so many smells, so many. I'll start with the sort of sad bit and then we'll work the other way. <laughs> when looking at the inheritance after my grandparents died, both sets of grandparents died, I'm not particularly a stuff person. We don't have loads of objects out and whatever. But there was one thing that I really, really wanted. Actually, two things. One was the set of cooking utensils that my grandmother used. So they were very cheap. They'd very cheap, off, probably off a market somewhere in India. I wanted the pestle and mortar, this brass pestle and mortar, because it made a sound that I knew my grandmother was cooking and I knew she was grinding spices and I could smell them. My, I'm already, my mouth is watering. There were definitely dishes that I totally relate to my grandmother. She were certain recipes that she stuck at when she moved to England and that when she moved to Britain and when she cooked for us. But a lot of it was because she couldn't get always get the ingredients. So she, we lived in Stamford Hill, which if anyone knows London is now probably one of the big centres of the very orthodox uh, Hasidim and Haredi communities. So a lot of people walking around in shtetlware, European Jewish. And even in the 70s and probably in the 60s, there were quite a lot of them. But it was a more, it, was, it wasn't just those people. It was a little bit more diverse, but not many Asian people there although my grandmother had brought a a chest full of spices with her 
and various cooking utensils from India, actually cooking what she wanted to cook was quite hard. She found things that worked and stuck yeah. at those, right? Yeah. But what, so definitely there were, there was a, there was a particular, very, it was really simple, just, just roast chicken, basically, but with spices on top. Very simple. So she'd bake that almost any time of day if we asked. The food that I probably, and this has caused me many problems, including many dental problems, the thing that was probably most often on my plate was very, it was the Indian sweetmeats. My grandfather had a very, very sweet tooth. So once a week, there's a place in Turnpike Lane, uh, used to be on Seven Sisters Road. There was a little shop where they made all the Indian sweetmeats. We went to Pandya's once a week. My grandfather would buy a large box of jalebis, a large box of ladoos, a bag of chev. Is it fried and then soaked in? Should we construct then some of these foods? Okay, so I'll do jalebis because that's the easiest one. But I think it's basically flour, sugar, fried in swirls. So it comes out mm-hmm. like a batter. You get this like these weird and wonderful shapes, which is also fun when you're a kid, right? Because they're just, it's exciting. And they're sticky. So when you break them open, it's like goo inside. So come on right? So much better than any Mars bar crap, right? So gooey inside, crispy. And then these fried swirls are dredged through sticky syrup. So you open a box and there are all these like weird shapes, which you kind of, what you're trying to do is like some kind of game of what's that buckaroo or whatever. You're trying to pull out the the whole piece, but it's all stuck together and you want to get the whole one. But of course it will break and then you've got to go in and get another bit. And then of course what you're doing is stuffing your face. (laughs) And I have many memories, you know, very fond memories of sitting between my grandparents, me stuffing myself with my, with my grandfather eating uh, a box of jalebis while my sister uh, would be sitting with pretty much a whole bag of chev, which is just fried gram flat. I mean, it's basically like crisps, both parents at work, but we were being looked after from my grandparents and they would spoil us they didn't say no it was the 70s we were happy so i have a lot of happy memories eating mostly asian food after school with my grandparents that's a real comfort memory and memories of food on the other side or was it all just like the laundered chicken exactly it's an equal love Uh, my mum cooked mostly ashkenazi type food so we had chicken soup regularly we would have chopped liver we had some salmon on special occasions I was never bothered about all the pickled fish I do not understand raw mop herring I never wanted it I know the family chicken soup recipe I can do it it's apparently my good fidelity to the original of course my mum's is best we did visit other family members and a lot of the festivals when we saw the rest of the family would be I guess a standard meal would be chicken soup, (laughs) chicken soup, canadler, lakshan. So that's a meal right there. But that was just the first course. Then chopped liver, maybe on rye bread. So that's another course. That's almost a whole meal, right? And then roast chicken with various gubbins and pickles on the side. Always had to be pickles on the side and some... Some kind of dairy-free dessert uh, or stewed fruit, which I didn't like. If you can launder a chicken, imagine what happens when you launder fruit that in itself is probably in a tin in the first place. Some of yeah. The other thing was there was this substance called crane, which oh. a lot of the 
a lot. I'd see other people, like I obviously, kid, catch up with everything. And all the adults were putting this little dollop of this brightly colored, purpley stuff with their food. And I was like, okay, well, I'll try that. A lot of people have got this experience of being a kid and asking what was inside the jar to and an adult going, yeah, why didn't you smell it? And then, of course, if you try smelling crane, which is largely horseradish colored with beetroot, you get your eyes peeled and your inside of your nose eviscerated. So modern day child experience of going for sushi and child popping the ball of wasabi in their mouth thinking that it's a lovely bit of something. Your entire eyeballs, nasal <laughs> cavities, tongue, roof of your mouth and ears all yeah. just explode. I've been vegetarian for nearly, you know, whatever it is, 30 years or whatever. And But I do miss chicken soup. I've got all sorts of things that I love that are alternatives. But when other people are passing around chicken soup with knedlich and I, there is a part of me that's like, yeah, I'm, I miss that. So in our household, we have vegetarians and we have non-vegetarians and I do love making chicken soup. And so now I make chicken soup and chick out soup. And the chick out soup, I try to get it as close as possible to the taste of chicken soup. And I think one of the secret ingredients, at least for ours, is this, the lemon that you squeeze. Uh. Lemon and then also quite a bit of oil. So you want the oiliness of the chicken, but without the chicken. So I, I will invite you to have some chick out soup at my house. My kids, when they're feeling sad or ill or just homey, yeah. they ask chick in and chick out. Jewish penicillin at school. My Indian family loved chicken soup. They liked collar because why would you not like a very enriched sweet bread? Right at home, I didn't feel it was either or. I got to have and, so I could have <laughs> jalebis and chola. A jalebis chola sandwich. Oh my! Do you know I? I must have done that. Did I do that? If not, I might try that. You're living in Britain. You've very multicultural Jewish experience. What do you think needs to change then in, in our? the so-called British Jewish community to support and include Jews like you, apart from this wonderful podcast? I think there's, there's two things that I think are probably already happening. I don't see, I don't live in a Jewish area. I don't go to shul, so I'm caveating. However Jewish I might feel and whatever goes on in our house, there is a wider Jewish community of which I don't, contribute or take part in so I just want to check my own ignorance very clearly there but I think there's some things that are beginning to happen so I think the conversation is the first bit and we're doing that here there was Stephen Bush's report for the board of deputies a couple of years ago prompted by Black Lives Matter I think that report was a very honest and well-written report in that it said there is an issue with normativity. We all just default to the white European Jewish experience, excluding the Sephardim, the Mizrahim, and let alone the the complexity of colorism in all of those identities. The, the Board of Deputies, it's not like a, a fringe aspect of Judaism. So I think that the community organizations have started to to look and ask the questions. 
most Jews, their experience of their practice will be at the synagogue. And most of the rabbis and the rabbinical structures are led by ultra-Orthodox or Orthodox European Jews. A very small example, Penny, is that every week Jews are meant to stop everything and have a day off. And that day is referred to as Shabbat. Shabbat with a T. I would say it with a T at the end. Most Jews that you meet <laughs> will say Shabbos because European Jews tend to pronounce the certain letters as a TS sound, which has sort of evolved to just an S. If you buy Shabbos candles at the shops, it says it's spelt with an S, not Shabbat. So there's this sort of constant reminder of whose culture we're in. If you're Jewish and if you're following the liturgy, the songs are Ashkenazi. And in some ways that's okay. But the space for other approaches is very rarely there. And I think that that would be the next big step. And I know that there are synagogues and communities where they are actively making space for Sephardim and even some that are making space for Mizrahim, but it's still That's it's the toleration. Making it's toleration. space. Well, it's making space. It's saying you can have one seat. There you go. You and I aren't practicing Jews, right? I find it very difficult to comment on what people do in a synagogue because that's their choice. It's not a space that I choose to be in. I'm not going there as a place of worship. So what other people are getting from it, that's for them to speak to. For lots of Jewish people, there's a large part of their identity that is housed within not just the home, but within religiously led practice. So I think there's a there's a lot of work to be done there. And that has to start with understanding that this religion that we're practicing, or you know, the people are practicing, did not come from Europe. There was a massive explosion in the Jewish population that started somewhere in the 1500s, but really didn't get going until the 1700s. And then it massively spiked and was much more than anywhere else. But for a long time, most Jews and a lot of those traditions about the liturgy and all of that were not European. And yet now the assumption is that everything, that, that the whole construct, the whole approach to how religious Jewish practice happens is defined by European practice. And while I understand how that's happened, I think it's up to those who believe to interrogate that a bit more and come back and tell us what works for them. It's not for me as a non-practicing Jew to to tell them what to do, but it's okay for me to raise the question, for me to point out that my grandfather and his community were practicing and living as Jews for as long and have very different practices, and they're equally Jewish. And it's reinforced by Christianity as well, because Jesus, who, you know, was a Jew (laughs) from that part of the world, is now depicted as this kind of one of the Bee Gees. You get the other weird thing where there was, I forget which bishop it was, but there are Christian leaders who, in response to the sort of the... Black Lives Matter refer to Jesus as being black. While that is great to challenge all the different things that people project onto Jesus, there's that sort of nagging thing of, yeah, but he was a Semite, right? This was an Arab-looking Jew. We can only speculate. We can only speculate, but we're all projecting, aren't we? There's a whole load of things going on there, and that equally is happening 
not just in the Christian community, but in all, I think a lot of faith communities trying to make sense of where their religion, how much their religion is identified within a racially specific ethnicity. It's odd to keep pushing an ethnically and racially specific identity on a religion. Its roots are over 2,000 years ago. We need to be open and honest about the history that got us here, not just assert stuff. What is a Jew? Is it about a religious identity? Is it cultural? Is it, you know, because all of what you're saying, I don't think I've, have I ever been in a synagogue? Probably once, twice. In fact, I can remember the times that I have been. I've been with a Jewish friend in my youth. I've been as a teacher taking kids on a school trip. I've, yeah, not very often. So, so the religious aspect isn't really part of my Jewish identity, although I'm aware it exists. And so all of it is alien to me, like how people say things or don't say things. But I'm very, very identified with being Jewish. I think were you to choose to spend more time in synagogues, shuls, synagogue's a Greek word, right? Just to clarify, when we say shul, that's what we mean. Yeah, I think were you to spend more time in shuls, I think you would see that there are certain patterns of the day and the way that the services run that fit with things that you've seen out in Jewish culture and certainly in Israel. But it's not necessarily to do with the liturgy or what's what's said, but it's to do with how things are done. I know this really acutely because when we lived in Jerusalem, we lived on a street corner near the old market and there was five or six synagogue or shawls on this tiny little road. Each of them could just hold enough to have the minyan, so to have the, the right number of people praying for it to be kind of knowledge. And so while I haven't been in any of those, they've definitely been in my life. The time leading up to Yom Kippur, it got to fever pitch. And because each of them had a culturally specific way of practicing, it was really hard for them to get the right number of men to come and form a prayer group. So they would stand out on the street at five o'clock in the morning, screaming, Minha! Minha! Uh, so I understand this kind of very specific cultural practices that means that I will go to this shawl and not that one that is literally two doors down. Yeah, and people, think I... that, people think yeah. that joke about the two Jews get shipwrecked on an island and then, you know, you know this joke, but people who don't know it, the Jewish joke goes two Jews get shipwrecked, they end up on an island five years later... A ship passes and they are welcomed back to the captain comes off and says, so how have you been surviving? And they show them around the island and they show them where the toilet is and where they get food and all of this. And he says, tell me, what are those three buildings up there? And, he said, and one guy goes, well, that's the shul that I go to. And the guy says, that's my shul. And then the captain says, so what's that third building? And they both say, that one neither of us will go to. <laughs> so I did grow up in quite a religious household. My grandfather was very dutty, very knowledgeable. His great-grandfather had been a chief rabbi, a community leader. He translated Jewish prayer books into Marathi. I grew up going to shul, different shuls, 
understanding what was common between even when we went to like liberal or reform schools because not because that's my choice but because family members were there I understood how those services worked mm-hmm. so I have that language inside mm-hmm. me even though I do nothing and I go almost you know almost never mm-hmm. if I walk in I know what to do mm-hmm. and I know or I sort of know what's expected and that there are some commonalities there what the Jewish communities in Britain need to do better is to recognize their privilege in that they are conducting it in an Ashkenazi way and say, this is how we're doing this. So if someone new comes in or because it's not, well, you know, obviously day to day, they just want to carry on. But to recognize the fact that this service is and this approach is of this community and does have these culturally specific things. doesn't need to be a big lecture. doesn't need to be a big, you know, mere culpa that aren't we terrible. It's this is what we are and there are other ways of doing this and that's okay. That would be a big step forward. We need, we almost need an version of 50 ways to live your lover of like 50 ways to do your dublin. Great. Yeah, we need to just tell the stories. Yeah. And not argue about what's right, but to understand the roots. As far as I understand my Jewish heritage of my Jewishness is... What's important to me is we're everywhere. We've always been everywhere. And we have a very specific story of struggle that persists. And uh, and so the richness of the cultural and multicultural and global experience is one of those things that actually, it doesn't dilute, it strengthens. There's so much in what you said that I utterly agree with. You said that we have a common history of struggle. And I think that's the bit that I'm really, really unsure about. I don't necessarily think that's true yet. Mm. I think that humans have a history of struggle. Mm. All communities, all identities, there is struggle. Mm. And I think that as Jews, we have got used to telling ourselves that we are the persecuted struggling ones. Mm. And when I look at the histories of this is where we need the experts, right? But as I have been exploring the histories of Indian Jews, the Ethiopian Jews, so many of these communities, for a long time, there was no struggle. There wasn't persecution. Nothing apart from the normal ebb and flow of history in that particular bit of geography, right? There was stuff. But it wasn't specific to them being Jews. And the European story of struggle and persecution is real and is a common experience for European Jews. And I think that a lot of more modern uh, black and brown Jewish experience of struggle has been tied into that. But I don't think it is historically constant. I think it's very recent. Well, no, I'm going to totally disagree in a very Jewish way with you. The story of Passover, all Jewish sort of celebration and whatnot is rooted in they tried to kill us we outsmarted them let's see right true so so that identity in the bible stories is one of struggle and staying rooted in what unites us in order to overcome that so maybe you know in different geographical situations people were just living their lives as Jews and nobody was anti-Semitic to them. That's something else. But I think the religious Jewish narrative is one of struggle and overcoming that struggle. Yes, 
there is struggle and that is a key story. It's not the only story. The Bnei Israel and the Indian Jewish community, until the Europeans turned up, didn't practice Hanukkah, didn't know about Hanukkah. They didn't know the Second Temple had been destroyed. Mm -hmm. They didn't know about that until the Europeans told, turned up and told them about it. And they had a whole other set of festivals which were related to other aspects of Jewish practice and identity that this is a whole nother podcast and I we need to get experts in to talk about those mm -hmm. practices but other festivals that related to their Indian identity it's been fascinating to hear about how do you do and I feel like I understand you much better I'd like to thank Penny Rabiger for interviewing me for this podcast. You can find out more about Penny on Twitter. Penny is at Penny underscore T-E-N, so that's Penny underscore 10 on Twitter. Penny does amazing work in anti-racism in education, and I would urge you to check out what she does. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Who Do You Think You Are? And we look forward to exploring the Juniverse with you next time. Goodbye.